So it's my privilege this morning to, um, to bring the word. And like Jay said, this has already been a very full service. I feel like a lot of the things that this church is all about have been on display for us to see. And the things that God is doing here are really remarkable. Um, when we came here years ago, just a few years ago, uh, it was actually VBS was one of the things that, uh, that drew us here. Our kids had a great experience here, and we started coming and seeing that, um, that what happened at VBS was not an anomaly. It's that, uh, I mean, you saw that everybody who stood up who's been a part of this, the fact that 73 kids came and there were 73 volunteers is remarkable. That doesn't happen um, in a lot of places, that there's so much of this church family that steps up and really serves together and loves, loves our family together. Give them a hand, absolutely, it's amazing. When we stumbled upon this church, um, it wasn't just, we didn't just stumble upon another local church. What we stumbled upon was a church family. And it's a church family who has very um, intentional values. The things that we do here and the things that we believe here are, are in fact, one and the same. The things that we do are tied into what we believe. We believe that God has called us to be people who love the community around us. We believe that God's called us to be a people who put a value not just on people, but on the person. And we believe that there is great value in teaching the word of God. And the fact that the kids get to experience that in a way that they can remember and recall is, is remarkable. And so this morning, as we get into the Word of God, um, over the last several months, we've been going through this series in 1 Corinthians, and we've been talking about topics, um, you know, like wisdom, uh, immorality, tolerance, marriage, singleness, a bunch of things that really aren't very relevant to us. None of these really affect uh, our individual lives, but today is the day you've been waiting for, because today we're going to get to something that's actually applicable. Some of you are a little slow. Maybe my my humor's a little dry. But today, nonetheless, nonetheless, today we're going to talk about food sacrifice to idols. So finally something you can take home, you can take with you, and you can live out this week. Um, So you're welcome. We're finally there. Uh, So for those of you who didn't get that, that was a joke. Uh, But the reality is, is that this is not a passage that's about food. It's not a passage that's about, um, that's, that's really uh, about um, idolatry or, or about customs of the times of the Corinthians. It's really a passage, I believe, a passage about humility and a passage about sensitivity to people who are around us. And, and so I think that that's why it is very applicable, just like the other parts. Just to clarify, I think all of Jay's sermons up to this point and Chris's last week have been very applicable. Um, so... We're going to uh, be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as the eating of food offered to idols... We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, 
as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, or from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as, ready, as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that works in and through us. And God, I pray that you would, um, that you would be faithful this morning to speak to us in a powerful way. We ask this for your son's sake and in his name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So I have to admit, I always kind of cringe when I get to that last line of that, uh, of that passage where it says specifically that uh, I will never eat meat again. Some of you, those, those of you who know me, know that I, I love my meat. I just, I just love my meat, you know? And, uh, and in fact, a friend of mine, Josh Burke, who comes here as well, we refer to each other affectionately as uh, Matthew 25, 35 men. Like that guy, uh, he's, a, he's a Matthew 25, 35 kind of guy. The reason is that in the King James Bible, that verse says, for I was hungry and you gave me meat. And, um, and so whenever we have people over to the house, whenever we go to their house, and many others here, not just the two of us, but man, I just love my meat. And, um, and so when I get to a passage like that, it's like, oh man, I, I'll never eat meat again. Ah, maybe I won't. I, I don't know. But luckily, like I said earlier, this passage is not about eating meat. Um, what this passage is about is about humility. I titled this sermon, The Love of Humility and the Humility of Love. And I'll get to why in a few moments. But first, I want to give you a little bit of background um, as to why this was such a, was such a big topic for the Corinthians. All these uh, letters that Paul wrote were mostly written in response to questions that he received from people in the church in Corinth. These were, you know, the church was new, and they didn't know how to navigate certain things. And um, the long and short of it was that a lot of the traditions, a lot of the local temples, a lot of the local altars, the things that were um, all over the, the city of Corinth were really centered around sacrificing to these false gods. And so what you'd have inevitably is, is these gods would require a sacrifice, so, you know, so-called. And so you'd have all this cooked meat everywhere. And it's like, well, what do we do with all this? And so sometimes the very, um, the very celebration or, or even the um, the ceremony itself would involve sacrificing the meat and then eating it as part of the sacrifice, or sometimes it was after the fact it was sold or if it was used for parties, whatever. This meat was all over the place. And so it was not, uh, it was not uncommon for people to come across meat that may or may not have been part of one of these pagan sacrifices. And for people uh, who were new Christians, especially, 
they were nervous about that. They thought, well, you know, what's going on here? And so Paul addresses this, and he says, well, we all, we all have knowledge. We all know that there's no such thing as these false gods. But the reality is, is that some people still can't in good conscience be a part of this because some of them had come out of this type of a tradition, and some of them had come out of these types of, of, of rituals. And so for them, they wouldn't really necessarily be able to delineate their past religious life from their current religious faith life in Christ. And so... Isn't it, it, wouldn't it be easier sometimes if, if we could just get a yes or a no when we ask a question? Like, is it okay to do this or not? And, and, and so it certainly would be easy for Paul to say, okay, well, listen, guys, we know that these gods are not real, so it's no big deal. Just eat it. It's meat. Enjoy it. Or on the other hand, wouldn't it be easy to say, yeah, you know what? It's defiled. So don't eat it. Just no. But he doesn't do that. It's not about what what these people are doing. And a lot of what we're gonna talk about today is not necessarily about what we're doing, it's about the motivation behind it. That there are other things that are at play and other things that are important to consider when we decide whether or not to do something. And that's the heart behind Paul's letter here. And that's the heart behind what he's getting across. Is he's saying, listen, it might be okay, but consider, consider why, consider your audience, consider who's there. Consider if they're weak. Um, and, and, and if they are, by all means, don't cause them to stumble. These are your brothers for whom Christ died, is how Paul refers to them. And in a little bit, at the end of the service, I'm actually going to sing a song. That's going to be the offertory. And, um, and you have a copy of it in your, in your program. It has on one side the lyrics to that song. On the other side, it has the lyrics um, from, from Shakespeare, All the World's a Stage. Um, and the idea that people are watching us all the time. And we have to be sensitive to that audience. It's important for us to realize that everything that we do as Christians is meant to help the people around us understand more about who God is. That's our role. So Paul says that we all have knowledge, but that knowledge puffs up. And then he says that love builds up. So think about the difference here. What's the difference between puffing up and building up? Most things, uh, you know, bo both of those things are, are being inflated. Both of these things are getting larger. But I think regardless of what we're talking about, whether it's meat sacrifice to idols or any other topic, I think we kind of all know what Paul means when he says that knowledge puffs up. It, it's arrogance, right? It's, it's pride. It's self-aggrandizing. It's belittling to others a lot of times. And it can be done actively and it can be done passively. So think about this. For someone who has a genuine concern, it's essentially like looking at that person in the eye and calling them a fool. It's like, you idiot, you don't know that you're, you're worried about nothing? On the other side, passively, it's turning a blind eye to a person who has genuine concern. It's essentially, it, it, it's like the classic example is, is don't take an alcoholic to a bar and, you know, throw back a few beers in front of them. It wouldn't be sensitive. You know, that, that would be a passive way of not being sensitive to their struggle. Um, whether I flaunt my liberty intentionally or out of ignorance, it's unloving. I want to say that again. Whether I flaunt my liberty intentionally or out of ignorance, it's unloving. So knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Later in the same letter, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul emphasizes the importance of love as the motivator behind all that we do. It's not about a yes or a no, it's about the motivation behind it. In 1 Corinthians 13, at the beginning of the chapter, it says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have, uh, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So did you catch that? It says, if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, but have not love, I'm nothing. I think it's important to identify a few terms. Um, before, when I've been here speaking, sometimes I'll use a word, and I'll mean kind of one thing by it, and it won't necessarily have all the nuances that I want it to carry. And so let me explain there. Let me uh, identify a couple of uh, definitions for you. Uh, before, when I've been here also, I talked about my definition of love that some friends of I, mine and I came up with when we were young Christians. And we were reading a book that we really didn't understand very much. And it talked about love in ways that we hadn't ever really considered it before. And so we decided to, to define love, and how I'm going to mean it through the rest of the service, is that love is fully delighting in fully delighting the object of your love. So when you're happy, I'm happy. And when you're fully delighted, I'm fully delighted. But what I believe very strongly is that the only thing that will fully delight you is God. And so there are things that I could do that would bring a smile to your face, and there's things that I could do that would make you happy for a time. But if I'm to fully delight you, the most loving thing that I can do is I can show you God's love. And so that's what I mean by love. Humility is another thing that's going to come up from time to time, and so I want to make a few notes on humility. Uh, a couple of quotes from some men much smarter than I, so I'll use their words. Uh, a guy named John Dixon says this. He says, Humility is not the same as humiliation, just in case you're wondering. Humility is the noble choice to forego your status and use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, humility is to hold power in the service of others. Humility will not make you great, but humility makes the great greater. We're going to talk a little bit later about Jesus as the example, the perfect example of humility in using his power in service of others. Um, but there's another, maybe the most famous quote, I think, um, on humility. It's actually attributed to C.S. Lewis, um, but it wasn't him that said it. Um, and maybe you've heard, uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Have any of you heard that before? So it wasn't C.S. Lewis that said that. It was actually Rick Warren who said it in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. So um, a common misconception. But, I mean, it's, 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 it's brilliant. It's very, very true. What, and, 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 I, and I believe it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Here's what C.S. Lewis actually said in Mere Christianity. He said, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you, of course, that he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility he will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And the biggest step too, at least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Those are the words of C.S. Lewis. 
And at the risk of a slight rabbit trail, I want to talk about the idea of the perils of introspection because I think it plays in really well with the idea of humility. It's always useful, I think, to have a broader perspective. And so how do we do this? And kind of the question is, can we do it on our own? The perils of introspection essentially means that we can't do something and evaluate that something at the same time. Either we're doing or we're evaluating. And so it makes it difficult for us to form an accurate opinion about what's actually happening. Sometimes, have you ever felt like you, you look back on something and you think, it seemed so real and so significant in the moment. But when you look back on it, you think, was there really anything ever there? It's because you can't be doing that thing and evaluate the doing at the same time. By the time you stop doing and start evaluating, all that's left is an echo. All that's left is an echo of the original shout. And that's what makes it tough to be truly introspective. Because when we're worshiping God, for instance, we're here in church and we're singing and, we, and, we, and all of a sudden we stop and we think, what are we doing here? Like, does, does this even make sense? This is weird. Why, why do we sing these words? Why do we go through all these motions? Why, I, I, am I really engaged in this? Is this really real to me? Am I really a Christian? Am I really serving God or am I doing it out of other motivation? Those are the kinds of thoughts that come into our heads when we try to evaluate after the fact. We try to think back because it's not, it's not happening in that moment. Maybe I'm the only one that does that, but I do it a lot. And I think, oh my gosh, you know, if, if I were to judge my, my faith life based on what I see happening on a daily basis in my life, and I've said before, you know, we all judge our own behind the scenes to everybody else's highlight reels. But if I were to judge my own behind the scenes to what I see going around, I would think, on, on around me, I would think, man, I'm just, I'm just not a very dedicated Christian. It's like, do I, do I actually love God? Do I actually care for other people? Or am I just doing all of these things for some other reason, for some other motivation? And is it selfish? Those are the perils of introspection. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we need the family of the church around us. We need the family of the church around us to encourage each other. We need the family of the church around us to, when we see each other serving God so joyfully, to, to bring that up, to acknowledge that, to thank God for those people and to thank those people for their, for their service. There's, a, there's an element of spurring each other on to love and good works that the Bible talks about, and that's how that's done. It's because it's really easy to get discouraged, and it's really easy to start to question our own motives. Not that it's always unhealthy to question our motives, because sometimes our motive needs to be questioned, but I think sometimes we're harder on ourselves and, and, and we sometimes have a, a, just a, a hard time really believing that we have genuine faith when we try to just do it on our own. And that's why the church is not supposed to be a, a single person game. It's supposed to be a family kind of uh, affair, everybody working together and encouraging one another. So now on to wisdom. That's the other term that I think we should define because there's a lot of different things that people can mean by wisdom. Um, what, I think, uh, what I think about wisdom, oh, and incidentally, I know earlier in, in the uh, sermon series, Jay did a sermon almost entirely on wisdom. And so if you want, go back, go back and listen to that for a more lengthy version of, a more detailed version of what I'm gonna say here. But essentially what I believe about wisdom is that wisdom is knowing the very best desired outcome in any situation and knowing the very best way to achieve that outcome. Essentially, it just means the best end by the best means. 
And here's the thing about that. If we claim to be wise, we should only do so when we believe we know those two things, the best ends and the best means. Humility enters the equation when we recognize that we may not know some things. We may, even, we, we may know a lot of things, but we don't know everything or even close. At the end of the previous book in Romans, God refer, or, um, I'm sorry, Paul refers to God as God who is alone wise. He says that we're, God is alone wise, implying that nobody else is wise. We're not wise. We might have some wisdom from time to time, but God is alone wise. And the reason that he is alone wise is that he knows the beginning from the end. He knows every possible scenario, and so you know, he knows the best scenario. He knows every possible end, and so he knows the best end. And so if we're, if, if we're truly being honest, we have to be humble enough to say, you know what, There's, there might be one or two possibilities that I'm not considering. There might be one or two possibilities that I don't even know exist. And so if that's the case, then I should be more humble about my opinions. I think that that is a tough pill to swallow sometimes, but it's true, I believe. So it's easy to wish to be humble. Humility is one of the most notable and noble traits, and when we're confronted with examples of true humility, we're drawn to those people. It's like Lewis said earlier, if you, if you, if you don't like someone who appears humble, it's because you feel a little envious. And, and, and therein is the problem with not being humble. Is, is that envy, envy is the opposite of humility. It's the opposite of love. And so it's easy to wish to be humble. When I was uh, doing some research for this sermon, uh, I'm kind of a nerd for uh, leadership books. I'm a management consultant. And so I, I love to read books by other people who are in leadership positions around the globe and around the country. And a lot of, a lot of books, I was surprised, there are a lot of leadership books that talk about the virtue of, virtues of humility. I mean, it makes sense. But, but here's, where the, here's the difference, I think, between worldly wisdom and, and godly wisdom. And here's where this comes in. And I was, like, blown away when I read some of these things. I read a few, a few books um, specifically on humility preparing for today. And one, I was, it was like driving past a car accident. I just couldn't look away. I was just, it was like page after page, and I was like, are you kidding? Did they really just say that? Man, I should stop reading this book, but I just couldn't stop. And here's why. So here's the... Here are, the, here are the steps that they say. Here's ways, to, uh, here, here's ways to be humble. Now, it says, oh, by the way, the context of this is, if you're not extraordinarily capable, then you're better off being humble, or at least seeming humble to others. And so, here are some ways to seem humble. Um, first, talk less about yourself. Uh, don't take yourself too seriously. Compare yourself more and not less to capable people. Resort to gentle flattery. And, and, and I, couldn't, I couldn't make this any more succinct, so I'm just, here's the last paragraph. It says, if feigning humility feels dishonest or manipulative, think of it this way. You're simply toning down what you believe to be are your praiseworthy accomplishments to give other people a chance to see them as clearly as you do. It's, it, this is real. After all, just consider the alternative. People who spend most of their time talking about themselves, being brutally honest and critical of others, and taking themselves way too seriously, they, they often end up worse off. 
So essentially, in other words, if, if you're not humble, just do your best to fake it. That's like the, that's the, that could be the, the synonymous uh, the, the, uh, of this book. That, that, could be the, that could be the entire... Uh, <laughs> the entire theme of the book, just fake your humility. So that's the difference, I think, between, again, again worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. The, the, things like this book, they're the antithesis of humility. Um, a lot of times human wisdom is just a distortion of truth. Sometimes it's a very slight distortion. It might be just off by one degree. It might be slightly different, but think about the trajectory of that. If you start off and you have two lines that seem almost parallel, but one is one degree off. You almost wouldn't even perceive that, right? But then take those, take those lines and take them to their logical conclusions, and you end up a world apart. And you end up with two completely different ways of living, completely different ways of acting, completely different ways of treating people, completely different ways of, of using people and manipulating people and being everything that's not humble instead of everything that is. There's some godly wisdom from Jesus on the same subject that I think is much better. In Mark chapter 9, um, I'll just read a portion of this out of uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 33, as they, speaking of the disciples and Jesus, came to Capernaum. It said, when he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued about which was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last, and he must be the servant of all. In Matthew, he says a similar thing. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Paul brings some more wisdom on this subject in Philippians. And this is a bit longer passage, but I think it bears reading. It says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So what does it look like to count others more significant than yourselves and to look to the interests of others? And does that come naturally? And I would say it doesn't come naturally for me. Um, maybe some of you in the room it comes naturally for. But the question I have to ask then is, how do I train myself to do this? I think very strongly that if I don't have within myself the self-control to, to do something, I have to look at outside influences. And there's certainly influences that are supernatural. The Holy Spirit does unbelievable thing in work in changing people's lives and changing people to be very humble who never had been in the past. But another thing, I think, pointing toward, pointing at the, the family of the church and, and the way that we call each other out. If we see something that doesn't seem right or doesn't sound right, um, there have been many times since we've been a part of this church and our small group and our other circles of friends where somebody will say something, usually it's me, will say something that's uh, not, uh, not the most sensitive and we'll get called out on it and say, yeah, you know what, you, you said this and, 
that was kind of a jerk thing to say. Like, you shouldn't have said that. Maybe you should apologize, or maybe you should clarify, or whatever it is. Um, outside influences like that. Another thing that we try to do, that I try to do, and I've told to, talked about my family's core values before, but um, going into meetings, going into, you know, having, having friends over at the house. Yesterday, we spent a great day um, boating with some friends, and and something we talk about with our kids, and that I try to run through my head a lot, are these, are these core value questions. And, and the questions are, will they feel loved, will they feel safe, and will they have fun? Because ultimately, our, our goal is that we honor God and that the people around us know who God is by how we act. And so when we pray with the girls you know, before bed, we, a lot of times that comes in to say, you know, thank you that we get to spend some time with friends tomorrow. God, help them to feel loved, help them to feel safe, help them to have fun, help them to know you. And it's a question that I find myself being more and more trained to ask as I'm going, again, get, coming into interactions with, with individuals and with groups is to say, will they feel loved by what I say? Not is it loving what I'm saying, but will they actually feel loved? Will they perceive that I love them? Will they feel safe? Do they feel like they can be themselves? Do they feel like they have to put up a wall or, or be rejected? And will they have fun? Is it going to be great? Is it going to be something that they want to do again? Those are some of the ways that I, that I try to train myself because I am not by nature a humble person. Those of you, again, who know me well, um, that might surprise you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I, I think re the reality is, is that we have, we have a, a, an amazing example in Jesus Christ of what humility looks like. And as Christians, everything that we do should be to, to try to emulate him in everything that we do. And so here's where I want to close. I want to finish with this verse. It's out of John chapter 13. And then, uh, and then I'm going to sing a song for you. John chapter 13, verses 3 through 5 says this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The beginning of that passage says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, this was a high point. And at the highest point, he became the lowliest servant. It's a great example. I think that the love of humility is a very real thing, but that the humility of love is undeniable. So let me pray for us, and then I'm going to attempt to sing a song for you. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you for the example that we have in Jesus Christ of what humility looks like. God, we thank you so much for the way that you love us, for how patient you are with us. We thank you that, God, when we are, when we are not humble, that, um, that you've surrounded us with people who can call us out and who can help us um, to do a better job of emulating your character. And so, God, be with all of us this week. We thank you and we praise you for your son's sake. Amen.